1: welcome to a true crime murderific journey i'm your host bernadette stay tuned after the show for promos patron shout outs and phone calls remember horrific in murder equals murderific enjoy the show content warning the murderific
0: true crime podcast contains offensive language and will have information about kidnappings torture murder and sexual assault it is inappropriate for children or the faint of heart
1: Brian Williams, a.k.a. Bison Deli, was always a complex man. He was an NBA player and part of the 1997 championship team, the Chicago Bulls. Brian changed his name to Bison Deli and walked away from a lucrative basketball career to travel the world. But on July 8, 2002, Bison Deli, his brother Miles DeBoard, Serena Carlin, and skipper Bertrand Saldo were sailing in the South Pacific. Three went missing, never to be heard from again, but Miles DeBoard was left, the one man who lived to tell the tale. Welcome to Murderific True Crime Podcast. My guest today is Casey.
2: Howdy, folks. I
1: have a little bit of deja vu right now, not gonna lie.
2: It feels like we just recorded this yesterday.
1: It feels like we recorded it, fucked it up, and now we're doing it again.
2: Yes, and this is not the first time we've done this, by the way.
1: (laughs) When this podcast drops, I hate to say it, but there's only going to be 27 shopping days until Christmas.
2: For Christmas in America, or those who celebrate Christmas.
1: Right, not everyone does, nor should you. I think people should shop small or craft. I think the holiday is very commercialized, and it ruins it for me. I feel like capitalism has taught us that you have to buy, 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 but really, you really don't. You can just put your foot down and say, I'm not, I'm not doing this. And that's what we've been doing lately and I'm here for it. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, Casey was mowing the lawn and a rock came out of it at literally 100 miles an hour, hit me in the nose and cut me so bad and it narrowly missed my eye. And
2: one more inch.
1: Yeah, so that would have been really bad. So, and
2: you'd have a pirate <laughs> pirate look today. Right,
1: but it's okay because I'm a podcaster. No one would know.
2: You'd have a podcast face.
1: Oh my God, no. <laughs> that's about it. That's all that's going on with us, really. So we're going to get on to this episode. Casey is here as a co-host because he is into sportsing and I am not.
2: I'm here for the sports.
1: Right, and this episode actually has to do with a basketball player. So let's get into it. Brian Williams' parents were Eugene Williams and Patricia Phillips. Patricia was a teenager and Eugene would go on to be part of the soul R&B group, The Platters. And they sang, do you know, Casey?
2: Only you.
1: (laughs) We're keeping that. (laughs) What else did they sing? They also sang Smoke Gets In Your Eyes and The Great Pretender.
2: I love that song. That might be my favorite by the Platters. In
1: 1966, Kevin, Brian's older brother, was born. And in 1969, Brian came along. The family went along with their dad on the tours as the Platters was a successful group. The couple divorced in the early 1970s. The kids went back and forth in between their parents' homes in California and Las Vegas. And this was pretty uh, tumultuous on the boys. It was a really a lot of back and forth, like moving into one home in a different state and then moving to another state, which is really hard on children. Their mother, Patricia, remarried to a very domineering man when Brian was in the seventh grade, but they split up and they lived in Fresno, California at the time.
2: Yeah, this particular man was emotionally and physically abusive to the boys.
1: Right. It definitely makes a mark on children. And in remembering her life, Patricia, she actually won't even talk about this man. She doesn't want him to be part of her story. So that's how much of a mark he made. Brian grew to be 6'10 tall. And with that, he leaned into basketball. He was, of course, a star athlete at his high school in Santa Monica and at Bishop Gorham High School in Las Vegas. He also ran track and field. He started college at University of Maryland for one year and then went back to the University of Arizona. So is that common, a lot of moving around in college when you're playing basketball?
2: I think for Brian, aka Bison Deli, he grew up in California. And remember, he was toggling back between his parents' homes. I think that was unsettling. So then he goes to college literally across the United States and we'll come to find out he has developed some mental issues, and I think that was too much for him. So he transferred back closer to home.
1: Got it. In 1991, Brian Williams was selected by the NBA draft as the 10th pick by Orlando Magic in the first round. He didn't play that much over two years and then joined the Denver Nuggets and played for two seasons. He played 80 games and averaged eight points per game. Next year, he played for the L.A. Clippers, where he averaged 16 points per game. He then signed on to the Chicago Bulls nine games before the end of what would be a winning year in the Bulls' fifth championship in 1997. He then joined the Detroit Pistons. After that, signed a seven-year, $45 million contract as a free agent. And um, I'm going to have Casey talk about his career more in depth.
2: So as you mentioned, he was drafted, and then ninety one, ninety two. 92, he played 48 games as a rookie, and he was actually pretty decent, what we would call a backup or a role player. Brian was diagnosed with clinical depression, and it was pretty unique to that time period, especially in professional sports.
1: Not unique, but he talked about it. That was unique.
2: Right. There was media coverage of this, which was unique. Ultimately, Orlando couldn't deal with Bison. His second year with Orlando, he only played in 21 games, and Orlando felt that he really wasn't connected to the game. He was absent. He didn't have the passion that other players had. They did end up trading him to Denver, as you mentioned. He had two, I guess, decent seasons in a backup role there as well, and then he was traded to the Los Angeles Clippers. In 1995-96 season, he had a a breakout year. He was really a, a starter at this point. He got the chance to start, played in a lot of games, and he ended up bopping out of his contract in hopes of a larger payday after that season. So no team took a chance on him knowing that he had some other potential issues or baggage with him. That forced him to sit out most of the entire 1996-97 season until, with nine games left in the season, the Chicago Bulls reeled him in for that championship run that you were talking about. Brian did so well, that ended up landing him that lucrative seven-year, $45 million contract with Detroit. The 1997-98 season, he actually had his best season as a pro. The 1998-99 season saw an NBA lockout. The season was shortened, and Brian just didn't have a great year. It looked like he was over it.
1: So Brian didn't have the same passion for the game. Not that he really ever did. I actually saw an interview with him and it was really interesting. His manner of speech was very deliberate and slow. I'm not sure why, but you know, when the reporters ask sports people like, how was the game? What do you think could be done better? He was not interested in the questions. And mid interview, he actually forgot what the reporter had just asked him. So he had to ask her to say it again. He just wasn't into it at all. During Brian's time in professional basketball, it was not all bliss. As Casey said, he struggled with clinical depression. One time, Brian took 15 sleeping pills. One time, he crashed his car. And another time, he also passed out in practice. One time on a plane, going to a game with the Pistons, Brian tried to open the emergency door during the flight, which could have killed everybody on board. His teammates had to hold him back physically. Brian stayed reclusive. In 1998, he changed his name to Bison Deli because he wanted to honor his Cherokee Native American ancestry and his African ancestry. So that is what we will call him from here on out, Bison Deli. At age 30, Bison, before he started the 1999-2000 season, retired with $36 million still on his contract and five years left. He quit and walked away from it all.
2: He retired just before training camp. Had he actually stuck out training camp and played in one game, he would have been entitled to his $6 million salary for that season.
1: Thanks to Best Fiends for sponsoring this episode of Murder Effect True Crime Podcast. Now that the colder season is upon us, it's time for electric blankets, snow-filled days, and true crime podcasts. Sometimes, after all that researching and writing, it gets a little bit heavy and I need a break, which leads me to Best Fiends, a 5-star rated puzzle game. It challenges my brain and has cute bugs, bugs that evolve even, and lots of characters to collect. I play Best Fiends to wind down after a stressful day, and I think that you should try it too. I know you have heard the commercials, and now it's time to play the game. You can play it anywhere and not have to worry about Wi-Fi. It leaves my mind ready and refreshed, and then I go back to work. So join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Go to Apple App Store or Google Play for the free download. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Most people believe basketball was not what he valued most in life. And... When he had enough money to leave that life like he wanted, he left. And live his life is what Bison did.
2: At that point, he had nearly $22 million in the bank from salaries, NBA salaries. And we're not sure how much he had with endorsements, but rough estimates were his net worth was somewhere between 20 and, and upwards of $36 million, somewhere in there.
1: Basketball was not what Bison valued most in life. And now he had enough money to live life like he wanted. And live his life is what he did. One of Bison's friends said, quote, Bison's great fear was to be another 40 year old NBA player paying the rent by doing car commercials. Unquote. And we've all seen those commercials where older athletes are selling joint cream <laughs> and probably making tons of money, but that's not what Bison wanted. Bison became a world traveler. He went to Lebanon, the Australian outback. The Mediterranean, he traveled across Europe with only a backpack. He ran with bulls in Pamplona. He jet skied, and he also got his pilot's license and DJed at nightclubs. He was living his life.
2: Detroit was still calling him, trying to get him back to play. No dice.
1: Bison also dated Madonna, though he found herself absorbed. He's done more now than most people do in their whole lifetime
2: he didn't want to live the typical nba lifestyle at the time anyway he didn't want to be a player that just went to bars or clubs and he was more um
1: he was more than that he was deeper he loved reading he He preferred
2: going to museums
1: yes he was intellectual in 2000 bison bought a 55 foot catamaran and named it hakuna matata which of course means no worries His big plan was to sail the boat to Hawaii. Inside the boat, it had many bedrooms, couches, TVs, and a kitchen.
2: Bison's goal was to get a former off-again, on-again girlfriend to sail with him, and that was a primary motivator for buying the boat. This girlfriend was Serena Carlin. After September 11, 2001, Bison called Serena since she was in New York working retail and real estate.
1: And didn't they date when he was a basketball player also?
2: They actually dated while he was a basketball player. And Serena couldn't accept the lifestyle of bison traveling all the time. So she decided to pursue her own professional interests and become more self-reliant. She went sailing with bison for two weeks and then it turned into five weeks. She came home knowing it was hard for bison to commit, but he called her again and begged her to come with him. She didn't think it was realistic to walk away from her bills and the life that she had built, but he sent her a package with a note that said, "Quote, this is what I think about your financial situation," end quote. and in that package was a check for $50,000. Bison asked Serena to live with him, not just visit. In 2002, Serena took the chance of her life and went to be with Bison in
1: New Zealand. Wow, that's like really the dream for someone to ask you to leave your life, and then give you enough money to pay all of your bills. But at the same time, a very scary decision for a young woman to make.
2: Right. She had actually spent a lot of time building her professional career intentionally.
1: But she loved Bison. A few months later, Kevin Williams, Bison's brother, showed up with no warning, and he joined Bison and Serena. He wanted to go on the big sailing trip as well. A little background on Kevin Williams now. Kevin looked very much like Bison. He was 6'8", and he weighed 270 pounds. Growing up, the brothers fought quite a bit. As they grew up, Kevin fought depression as well. And as his brother became well-known, popular, and rich, Kevin felt overlooked, and he made many suicide attempts. He drank too much, and he always went to Bison for money for business ventures that never worked out. By the time the brothers met again in 2002, they actually hadn't seen each other in four years. Their relationship was very strained due to the fact that Kevin would only approach his brother when he wanted money.
2: Bison was a very generous man. As we just learned, he gave $50,000 to Serena. And on multiple occasions, he gave tens of thousands of dollars to his brother to pay for medical bills, other life events.
1: Right. But his brother, Kevin, was not appreciative. He was mostly resentful of his brother. And during the last four years, Kevin had also changed his name, like his brother, to Miles DeBoard in past years.
2: Most people refer to him or will see his name online as Miles DeBoard. Yes. When you dig in, you'll see Kevin. We started off this podcast by introducing him as Miles DeBoard.
1: On the day of July 6, 2002, the Hakuna Matata left Tahiti, going to Hawaii. Four people were on the boat, Miles DeBoard, his brother Bison Deli, Serena Carlin, and the captain Bertrand Saldo. There were three satellite phone calls made from the boat over two days and then nothing. None of the family knew what to do in this situation because they're out in the middle of God knows where. In late August, the U.S. Coast Guard sent a distress call to all ships within 1,000 miles of Tahiti. Serena's family contacted the FBI and the White House.
2: It was abnormal for Serena to go any length of time, really, without contacting her parents, so they knew something was wrong. She would check in every week, like clockwork.
1: There was nothing until September 5th. A man who looked like Bison and had possession of Bison's passport and checkbook tried to buy Gold Eagle coins from Certified Mint Incorporated. The amount would be over $150,000. The bank thought something was off and called Bison's assistant and then the Phoenix Police Department, who then went to speak to the man who was, guess who?
2: Miles DeBoard.
1: Correct. Miles said that he was trying to buy the coins with his brother's consent, and that the check was forged with his brother's consent. Police couldn't find Bison Deli, so they had to let Miles go. There was no evidence of a crime. So yeah, they can't talk to Bison about it. There's no proof that Miles was lying. The FBI and police were now involved and they found out that on July 16th, a man who looked like Miles showed up at Fenton Bay Marina in Tahiti. With him was a boat, and the boat had been registered and renamed as the Ariabella. The boat, though, even with a new name, you could still see the faint previous name, which said Hakuna Matata, and more importantly, Miles was alone. Next, the FBI looked at the boat and saw bullet holes that had been patched up there were also faint traces of blood on board. Miles knew that his days were numbered. He called a girlfriend, Erica Wise, in San Francisco, who flew in to be with him. Miles told her the story of what had happened. Granted, this is Miles' story. His story goes as follows. Miles said that he got into a physical fight with Bison, and they fought. Serena tried to break up the brothers from fighting, And in the process, she was knocked down by Bison and she hit her head and died from the injury. The captain, Bertrand Saldo, told both brothers that he was going back to port and he would have to report Serena's death. Miles said that Bison then took a wrench and beat the captain to death. With only the two brothers left on the boat, Miles said that he feared for his life. He said that he feared that he would be strangled, so Miles shot his brother, Bison. There's a lot of problems with this story up front.
2: First of all, what's the likelihood of someone falling on deck and hitting their head with such force that it killed them? But let's even say that's possible and it happened. Bison went out of his way to get Serena to go with him on these trips. There's no way he wouldn't do anything for her. And to believe that Bison would kill the skipper as he tried to bring his girlfriend back to port is just fishy.
1: And also, what sounds ludicrous is the fact that Miles was so scared that he was going to be strangled that he shot his brother. If he had a gun, then he wouldn't be in fear of his life in the first place. So the whole thing doesn't make sense.
2: Right. Why don't you just hide under deck until you get into port?
1: Miles told his girlfriend that he then weighted all the bodies down with bodybuilder weights and threw the bodies overboard into shark-infested waters and that he just sailed away. After Miles told his girlfriend the story, he fled to Mexico. He called his mom, Patricia, and told her, quote, I found something out, and I tried to cover it up, but I didn't do what they're saying. No one will believe me, unquote. He also said he would never hurt Bison and that he couldn't live in prison. And then he told his mother that he was going to commit suicide. On September 15th, Miles was found on a beach in Tijuana, unconscious. Overdosed on insulin. He was brought back to a San Diego hospital. Miles was in a coma for two weeks, and then on September 28, 2002, he was taken off life support and died. The chief prosecutors in Tahiti said, quote, All the elements put together end to end lead us to consider that they have apparently been killed, the three on board. There is also every reason to believe that they were murdered, and that a handgun was used, unquote. Since all we have is Miles' unlikely story and speculations, we will really never know what happened to Bison, Serena, and Bertrand that day. Even worse, Miles' account may be total lies, and we really don't know what happened.
2: There was a memorial service for both brothers on October 12, 2002, at Trinity Baptist Church in Los Angeles. The two brothers' mom spoke and said she loved both her sons. The reverend spoke also. He was a cousin of the family and said, quote, the fact of the matter is only God knows the truth, End quote.
1: And that must have been really devastating for her. Both of her boys are dead. That's very devastating for a mother. And then to know that something horrible happened between the brothers also just is unbelievable and that is the end of episode 58 season six of murderific what a terrible story of a brother who was so selfish and greedy he most likely murdered three people including his older brother who helped him all throughout his life just to get what he wanted it's very senseless listeners let us know what you think of the case and any theories you may have on it And also, if you want any sports cases, sports crime cases covered, then let us know because Casey's the guy for that. Thank you for listening and thank you to Casey for hosting.
2: You're welcome.
1: A big shout out to our new patrons, Angie S. from Illinois and our executive producer, Mike T. You can find us on buymeacoffee.com and we would appreciate some Christmas coffee for sure. We will see you in December. Bye. Bye.
2: Thanks for listening to the Murderific True Crime Podcast. To support the show, join our Patreon and hear the regular podcast early and ad-free. Plus, get some fun merch or buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com. You can find both of those links in our show notes or at murderific.com. Of course, you can rate and review Murderific on iTunes, which is free and an easy way to help others find the show. Or, tell your friends, it really helps. All sources for episodes will be in the show notes. Until next time, we will be executing podcasts one crime at a time.
0: Craving this awful, raging, eating feeling inside. I could feel it consuming my inside. This fantastic passion, uh, it was overwhelming me. Did you hear about the Welsh tourists who got drunk and stole a penguin named Dirk from SeaWorld on the Gold Coast? or the Canadian guy who tried to beat a breathalyzer test by eating his own underpants. Hey, I'm Tara Saraban from World's Dumbest Criminals, an upbeat podcast about deadbeat crims. Join me every Monday to hear about the most ridiculous, bizarre and downright stupid crimes and criminals in the world ever. Like the Australian man who put out an unsuccessful hit on his wife and freaked out when she crashed her own funeral. Or the Chinese woman who deliberately ran 49 red lights in her ex boyfriend's car. World's Dumbest Criminals is available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe if you don't want to miss any criminally stupid shenanigans. With lucky landslides, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the
1: bride and groom?